If you have your Bibles with you this morning, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Uh, so today, as we're celebrating Easter, and we're going to continue through this series we've been working through as we're working through the book of Philippians. But when I, when I started looking at this book to go through and looking at the passages and how they would break down, I, I knew that I wanted this passage to be the one we talked about on Easter. Because I think there's so much in it that we will see that relates to what we're celebrating and who we're celebrating and, and how all of that works together. Uh, and it just so happened and it, to work out to, uh, the way that the passages broke down would bring us to this passage on Easter so if you would, as we look at this passage, the words will be on the screen as we read. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should not look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. Adopt the same attitude of, as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Father, we thank you for this day that you've given us. We thank you for this time that we have to come together to look at your word, to, to celebrate the empty tomb and a risen Savior. And Father, as we look at the attitude of a Savior, we look at the attitude that Jesus had and that we are called to have ourselves, Lord, I pray that you would Help us to see ourselves clearly this morning. Help us to see clearly what your word says about us. And Lord, convict us to move and to, to act in a way that is glorifying to you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So coming into this passage, coming into Philippians chapter 2, Paul has just preached and written to them as we looked at last week about how to live is Christ and to die is gain. How living our life should be for Christ and dying is gain as we will be with Christ. And from this, he comes to the point where he is talking to the Philippians. He's getting a little further deeper into some of the issues that he's addressing in his letter. One of the issues that starts to become clear that this church is having and becomes clear that the church has later in the, in the book, as we'll see some specific instances, that the, the church in Philippi had an issue with selfishness. And what we're going to see first is that we need to cure the disease of selfishness. How do we cure the disease of selfishness? 
He's expressed already several times in this letter the need for unity in Christ. We saw that all throughout chapter 1. Be united in Christ. Believe the same thing. Have this unity. And later addresses specifically an issue between two women in the church. Selfishness is defined as lacking consideration for others. Chiefly concerned with one's own profit and pleasure. You see, the reality is that all decisions that we make in life, all of the decisions we will have are based on what we want. Those decisions become selfish when what we want is concerned primarily with ourselves and even comes at the expense of others. Selfishness is when our desires are primarily concerned with ourselves rather than what God would have us to do or without considering how our actions might impact others. And the hard truth that we have to face in life is that all people are selfish. I'm selfish. You're selfish. We all are selfish. Now, you might sit there and think, well, I'm not re- I don't really view myself as a selfish person. And I don't generally think of myself that way, but we all act selfishly from time to time. We all act in our interests rather than the interests of others. And I think selfishness is one of the root attributes that I think could be argued as present in almost every sin. We see this evident in the beginning of Scripture as we look at selfishness and, and how selfishness motivated the sin of people that we see in the Bible. Eve wanted the fruit that she was told would give her knowledge and would, give her, would make her like God. She saw that it was desirable. And she wanted it even though God had commanded her not to. So rather than do what God had said, she did what she wanted. Cain was jealous of his brother and desired revenge. Because he wanted revenge, he murdered his brother. And Abram, who wanted to live and feared for his life, when he entered into a city, said that his wife was his sister rather than his wife because he wanted to live. And he was worried about himself rather than his wife or anything else that might come of that. All of these situations are, are in the very beginning of the Bible, and they all have something in common. They had a desire that was wrong, and they acted upon it anyway. No doubt you've seen in your life how selfishness can lead to, to great difficulty. When people are selfish, there are ramifications. And the hard truth that we see, the hard reality, is that selfish people are not always the one who feel the effects of their actions. But it's others that do. If you think back to the beginning of the pandemic, one of the things that happened was there was supply chain issues and and things weren't being delivered. And one of the, the main things that went out of stock on the shelves very quickly was what? Toilet paper. But what did you also see at that same time? You saw empty shelves, but you also saw people with truck beds full of toilet paper. Why do they do that? Because they were selfish. They were selfishly hoarding something that other people would need, not considering how their actions would impact others. Now, some might say, well, they weren't taking it all for themselves. They were going to sell it. Well, that's selfish also, isn't it? To take from others for your gain, to take for your profit. And we see that when, when companies or people, they do things and exploit others. Why? Because of selfishness. And so here's what we see Paul addressing with them. He said, if, if, if anything, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any consolation of love, any fellowship with the Spirit, 
any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. The antidote to selfishness is not to stop wanting, but rather to change what you want, to allow it to be changed by God. He's talking to these believers and he's telling them, don't want what you want, want the same thing, have the same purpose, have the same love, the same goal. Instead of desiring what our flesh would cause us to desire, instead of wanting and chasing after things that are temporary and of this world, he says to be united by the faith that we have. Instead of doing things from selfish conceit, we must desire greater things, to be motivated by our love for God and to be motivated by our love for one another. This is where we get to the difficult part, where we have to put that into action. Make my, starting in verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. This is a very difficult idea. The idea that we are called to consider others as more important than ourselves, not looking to our interests, but to the interests of others. This goes against the way that we tend to operate. This goes against our nature. We, we are commonly united by the idea that we all want to seek things for our good. Our nature will, will push us to do things for our good. What do we see here? To deny that, to look for the good of others. The, the, the idea to live for others is also very contradictory, not only from the way we are naturally motivated, but from what the world tells us to do. The world says, focus on yourself, to do what you want, to get what's yours, to take advantage, to, to do what you need to do. No one's going to give you anything in this world. If you want something, you've got to go and get it. It's very self-focused, self-motivated. The, the idea of the world is, is a whole life view what they tell you to do on airplanes, right? If, if they were said, if they, in the event of the oxygen mask coming down, will you do what? Put it on yourself first, then care for others. And in that situation, you can't care for others unless you do that. But they tell you that the entire world works that way. Get yours first, and then if you have time, worry about other people. Well, what does God tell us? What do we see in Philippians? Do not look out to your own interest. Don't, don't be, do anything from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, consider others more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interest of others. This is in line, I think, with what Jesus told us when, when he's asked about the great commandment. What is the great commandment? To love God with all that you are. The second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Not simply to call to love your neighbor. And I think we miss this very often. Not just to love your neighbor, but to love your neighbor as yourself. And this will require, when we do that, that we consider them as more important than ourselves. Let me, let me explain why I say that. You can only do one or the other. You cannot love yourself and then also love your neighbor as yourself. We see the parable that Jesus tells of the Good Samaritan immediately following this story. And what do we see? We see men walk by. Now, they might say that they love their neighbor. No doubt they would. These were religious leaders that walked by. But what did they do? They were concerned primarily with who? 
themselves. And so that motivation, that concern for themselves, that love for themselves motivated them to do what? To walk by. The next person, or the the final person, the good Samaritan that stopped, he loved his neighbor as himself. He saw in that person himself. So what did that require him to do? He no, no doubt had tasks that he was doing, had no doubt things he had to take care of, but he laid those aside and loved his neighbor as if his neighbor was himself. And so that's what we see here. Don't look out to your own interest, but to the interests of others. All of this is motivated by a common love for God, thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Now, it's hard to do this. It's very challenging to do this because what happens when you selfish, selflessly love someone and they take advantage of you? Have you ever been taken advantage of? It's not a very good feeling. And oftentimes what happens is when someone is taken advantage of, it jades them, it corrupts them, it, it makes them bitter. And what are they less likely to do the next time? To give selflessly. But we don't see that here. Right? When Jesus was asked, how often should I forgive my brother? Seven times? No, I tell you, seven times 70. Forgive. Consider others as more important than yourselves. The beautiful thing that happens is, imagine if everyone in here considered everyone else as more significant, more important than themselves. That would be the most loving, beautiful environment to be in. Instead of people taking giving, making sure that everyone has what they need. We saw that. We've talked about that as we look through what fellowship looked like in the early church in Acts chapter 2, making sure, giving to others. But we see even at the beginning of the church in Philippians, in the, in the church in Philippi, they struggled with the same things we struggle with, selfishness, looking to what we want. Well, I don't have time to do that. I don't, have, I don't know if those people will, will appreciate it. I don't know if I want to do it. That's not what Paul is concerned with. That's not what God is concerned with. Love your neighbor as yourself, not looking to your interests, but to the interests of others. So how do we overcome selfishness? How do we overcome this in our life? What example do we look to? Well, very clearly here, Paul tells us that we should look to the the attitude of Christ. Adopt the same attitude as that that of Christ Jesus. We see the humility of Christ who existing in the very form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. When he had come as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. We're going to look at that first part for a moment. Existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. John chapter 1 walks us through the understanding of who Jesus is and really quite, quite literally why he was crucified. Jesus was crucified for claiming to be the Messiah. And one of the reasons I love John so much is if you're not versed in Jewish culture, you don't understand the Jewish prophecies or what certain words mean, some of the other gospels are, are a little more convoluted when Jesus is, is claiming to be God, but it's still very clearly there. But in John, there's no if ands, or buts about who Jesus is. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in 
the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. We'll see a little more specifically in in just a few moments, but Jesus is the Word. When you look in John chapter 1, when it says the Word was with God, it is speaking about Jesus. Jesus is God. He is not created, but co-eternal with God, existing forever with the Father and the Spirit. This is the Trinity, the mystery of the Trinity, one God, three persons. It is through the Word, Jesus Christ, that we see the attitude of supreme selflessness. Though he was with God, though he existed, though he was reigning from eternity, he concerned himself with those that were created below him. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. Going back to John chapter 1, we see what the Word did. The Word we talked about at the beginning of John chapter 1, who was with God, who created all things. Nothing was created without Him. All things were created for Him. John chapter 1, verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed His glory, the, the glory as the, only one, as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The name that we often refer to Jesus as, Emmanuel, which you hear that most often around Christmas time, means God with us. The Word became flesh, dwelt among us. The Word is Jesus. God in the flesh concerned Himself with that which He had created, that had rebelled against Him. You know, there's something about seeing a person in a high position take on a task that's beneath their station. Oftentimes those people gain a lot of respect. You like to see your leaders at, at the, the ground zero of when things happen, right? You want to see them present. You want to see them there. It gives you some confidence. We're so fascinated with this that there's been an entire show uh, that has come from this premise. Have you ever seen Undercover Boss? Right? It's the idea that a president or CEO of a company goes and he works in, in, in some of the entry-level positions, and it's all under a premise, and no one really knows why he's there. They put on a disguise. And no one really recognizes them. And sometimes you see people really show their true colors, right? They, they start talking bad about the company. There are all these things that happen. And though we realize that, that this is kind of just a marketing stunt, right? If you see a company talking and at the end they give all their employees a lot of things, that makes the company look really good. And, oh, I want to go to that company. They're nice people. But really what we see is this is exactly what Christ did. He is king over everything and came and took the form of a servant. And he made his intentions clear on why he was here. He didn't come to be worshipped. He didn't come to be, to be lauded. Not, not at that time. That would be the end result, as we'll get to. But he came to serve. In Matthew 20, 28, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus had all authority and all power, but he willingly came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If we talk about adopting the attitude of Christ, how can we think that we should be selfish? How can we think that we should look to our interests, concern ourselves with what we want when Christ, our Creator, came to serve? Whatever we think we might deserve, whatever we think we might be entitled to, 
It's nothing compared to what Christ is entitled to that he laid down to serve. And we can see he served in so many ways that we can see and learn from. He associated with the despised and the rejected. He often was in the company of sinners, as the Bible said. He he associated with sinners, drunks, prostitutes, other generally publicly sinful people who were looked down upon by society. He associated with the unclean, those with diseases that did not allow them to associate with society. He healed them. He associated with tax collectors. And most commonly, this would be referring to Jewish people who became tax collectors for the Roman government. They were viewed as traitors by their people. He healed those who had lost hope in finding a cure for their affliction. He multiplied food to the hungry. He raised the dead. He washed his disciples' feet. When he had come as a man, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus died so that we could be reconciled to God. He died so that all who would believe could be forgiven. The benefit of his sacrifice is available to everyone, including you. Jesus died for you. The humility of Christ, I believe, is captured beautifully in the chorus of the song, How many kings, how many kings stepped down from their thrones? How many lords have abandoned their homes? How many greats have become the least for me? How many gods have poured out their hearts to romance a world that is torn all apart? How many fathers gave up their sons for me? Only one did that for me. So the humility of Christ that we see made clear here in this passage throughout Scripture, the way that he lived his life will lead to the exaltation of Christ. On Friday, we observed Good Friday, and we remembered Jesus crucified, dying on the cross for our sins. The disciples were scattered. There was mourning. And it seemed as though all were lost. And we see that the disciples had deserted. They, they thought their time following Christ was over. But then came Sunday. And when they go to see the tomb, what do we see? That the, the stone was rolled away and he was not there. He was risen. Death could not keep him. Jesus had conquered the grave. And our hope that we have as, as Christians, as people who follow Christ, hinges on the resurrection Look at what it says in 1 Corinthians 15, 17 through 19. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Those then who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. If we, have, if we put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. But the good news today, the reason we celebrate Easter, the reason it's such a big deal is that He is risen. That is why he is exalted. In Hebrews 1.3 we see the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. 
And this is where he remains until he comes today. It's not just that Jesus rose from the grave. He is alive today. God is alive. Christ is alive. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and that is where he remains until he comes again. And so we see that Christ is highly exalted. The name that is above every name. Right? This we see in verse 9. For this reason God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. There is no name greater than the name of Jesus. There's often conversations about who's the greatest of this, the greatest of that. We remember people from history, but there is one name that is greater than any name. And only one name we need to be concerned with, the name of Jesus. Because we see, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, the dead, the living, the angels, all that exists will confess Jesus is Lord and will bow at the name of Jesus. You know, there's so many in the world who do not acknowledge Christ as Lord that the idea of all bowing and confessing Him as Lord can be a hard thing to imagine. You know, there are very few things in this world that are universally agreed upon. Make any statement of truth, statement of fact, and there will be someone who will disagree with you. People seem to like to argue. The only things that are generally as close to universally agreed upon are things that have undeniable evidence. If you have two apples and you take two more apples, it's pretty clear that two plus two is four. You have four apples now. We see this reality of people denying things that are true when it comes to the resurrection and lordship of Jesus Christ. There are many reasons why people don't believe in Jesus. And there are many people who give their whole life to giving answers, to, to trying to defend the faith. The defense of, of the faith is known as apologetics. They're trying to defend and to explain to people they, they don't believe for this reason, they don't believe for that reason. What we do know is there will be many who do not believe. But at some point, whether in this life or in the next, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. The most ardent atheist, the most devout follower of another religion, one day they will all bow before Jesus and confess that He is Lord. And for the believer knowing that one day we'll be able to see our hope realized and to bow before Him and to celebrate and to see Jesus is Lord and to proclaim that with joy. But the Bible is clear this will not be a joyful experience for all. Jesus is coming back and when He does, He will judge the living and the dead. And and if we were to face this judgment based upon what we have done, all people would be condemned. You see, you can acknowledge something and be terrified by it. You see, today we celebrate what Jesus did today, that that because of what He did, we can be forgiven. That when we face Him, we don't have to be ashamed. We don't have to be fearful. We don't have to, to run and hide because we know that because of what Jesus has done, we can have life. And it's so simple that even a child can understand. If we will acknowledge that we are a sinner... Believe that Jesus died for our sins and was raised to life. Confess Him as our Lord and Savior. We can have life because of what Jesus did, because He 
is risen. But there are many who will reject this. They will walk through life intent on their own way, and they will one day face Him. And they will kneel before Jesus and they will confess that He is Lord, but not from faith, but because of an overwhelming reality that it's true. You know, in a, in a UFC fight, there is a time where people will tap out and they are admitting defeat. People wave a white flag and surrender in a battle. They are admitting defeat. They are admitting that the other, te- the other person, the other the enemy, the adversary has won. But they're not joyful about that. And those who live this life intent on their way and died in their sins will confess that Jesus is Lord. They'll bow before Him, but it won't be from joy. They'll have sorrow because of their sin. They'll have sorrow because of what they have brought upon themselves. We must understand that this would be the fate of all people had Christ not intervened. This is why we preach the gospel, because Christ made a way for us, and Christ has made a way for all who would believe. That because of what Jesus did, we can have life. Because Jesus is alive, we can have life. I heard one of the most beautiful explanations of this this past week in a sermon excerpt from Alistair Begg, and he was talking about the scenario that you've probably often heard before or the question that maybe someone's put before you. If you were in heaven and, and an angel or you were asked, why, why are you here? Why should, why should you come into heaven? Why should you be let into the, the kingdom of heaven? He stated that if we don't constantly preach the cross to ourselves, if we don't remind ourselves that our salvation is from God, we will regularly revert to a Jesus and works-based salvation. He greatly warned that, that our answer to that question should never be in the first person, because I. If, you, if your idea and understanding of salvation is because I believe, because I had faith, you're wrong from the beginning, he said. He said he, he wanted him to think about the man on the cross, the thief on the cross, to imagine he's in heaven and an angel asks him, what are you doing here? Well, I don't know. Well, what do you, what do you mean you don't know? I, I don't know exactly wh- how I'm here. Well, do you understand the doctrine of justification? No. Do, have, you, have you been baptized? Have you, have, you, have you been a member of a church? No. On what basis are you here? The man on the middle cross said I could come. When we understand our salvation, when we understand and we relate, why should we be allowed into heaven? It's not because I have believed. It's not because of what I have done. It's all because of what Jesus has done for me. And that is what our salvation rests upon. That is what we celebrate today, that because of what He has done, because He lives, because of what Jesus has done, We can face this life. We can face the life to come. But the question I ask you today is if you were in this situation, what would you say? Can you say, because He paid my price, I can have eternal life?
Do you know Jesus this morning? Do you have a relationship with Him? Have you made Him your Lord and Savior? If you have, today is the day to celebrate the resurrection, to remember the victory of your Savior over death, to look at the attitude of of humility and service that He demonstrates in coming to die for you. Because remember, as Romans 5 says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And to look at that attitude of humility and to, to celebrate the resurrection and to live our lives in such a way that we point other people to this same salvation. Knowing that one day they will stand before God in judgment. Our job as believers is to urge them to understand and to realize that Jesus is risen and He is Lord now. Today, if you don't know Jesus, and I want to be clear about what I mean by that, if you don't know Jesus, I don't mean that you've heard of Jesus, I don't mean that you've been to church sometimes throughout your life, I don't mean that your parents believe in Jesus, that you have a, a, a... knowledge of the truths of the Bible that you understand, you could tell someone the story. Do you know Him as your Lord and Savior this morning? Have you trusted in Him to forgive you from your sins? Have you realized that without Christ, you are destined for destruction? Have you realized that? Have you trusted the free gift that He gives you of salvation this morning? Have you followed Him in obedience? Because those are the only two places, the only two answers you have to that question this morning. Yes, I have, or no, I have not. In just a few moments, Becky's going to come and we're going to have a time of invitation. And, And during that time, I want you to reflect on where you are today. If you know Him, worship Him. Pray for those you know who don't know Him. Pray that you would feel more convicted to share your faith with those who don't know Him, to to celebrate the good news. As we saw the women that went to the tomb and saw it was empty, what did they do? They went and they told. And as you've come today and worshipped the Savior who left the tomb, go and tell. And during this time, if you don't know Him, today is the day to give your life to Christ. Don't wait any longer. I'll be down front for prayer. The altar is open for prayer. Don't wait. Be obedient to Christ today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day that you've given us, this this time we can come together and celebrate an empty tomb. And God, I pray that we would be motivated by the humble example we see in Christ who, who left His glory in heaven to bear the likeness of man, to come as a man and to to die on the cross for us so that we could be forgiven. Not because we deserved it, but the opposite, but because He loved us so much that we could be forgiven. God, we praise You for that. We thank You for that. And I pray that during this time we can reflect on that. And if any do not know You this morning, that today would be the day they would turn to You. They would let all pride, all selfishness, anything that might get in the way, fall away, and they would turn to you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand?